0: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The age of blogs, personal websites, podcasts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and all the rest have intensified human interactions. Every day, hundreds of millions of people can express their every waking thought to people thousands of miles away in real time with no temporal disconnect between heightened emotional states and the recipient of that sentiment on the other end of a message. You likely have an opinion on how this has impacted your own life. Following the surging prominence of social media in spiritual and religious realms of society is an intriguing area of study, as we can observe how religious expression and community building transform before our very eyes as our technology connects more and more corners of the world. This irreversible shift in technology and access to expression matters to all areas of the world, including religion. My guest on this episode is Dr. Julia Evolvi, who researches these topics of media and religion. Dr. Evolvi is the author of the brand new book, Blogging My Religion, Secular, Muslim, and Catholic Media Spaces in Europe, which is out now from Rutledge. She is also a research associate at Ruhr University's Center for Religious Studies in Germany. Of her book, she writes on her website, In my book, I wanted to explore how religion is changing in Europe. While many scholars say that Europe is increasingly secular, there are some circumstances in which religion becomes more public. My argument is that digital media, such as blogs, are venues that some groups use to discuss religion in new ways. I had a blast reading Dr. Evolvi's book and chatting about blogs, social media, our hyper-mediated online environment, and talking about how media and religion intersect in 2019. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Julia Evolvi from Ruhr University. Volvi, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Can you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience so we have a sense of who you are and what you do?
1: Okay, sure. Um, So my name is Giulia Volvi. Uh, I am originally from Italy. I studied in the U.S. And I'm currently based in Germany, in the city of Bochum, near Dusseldorf, where I work at the university at the Center for Religious Studies. And my area of expertise is that of religion and media. Fantastic.
0: So we're going to get into all of the discussion about your book and media in religion and Europe But first, can you begin by describing the role that religion played in your life and upbringing in Italy?
1: Yes. So my story is a little bit unusual, at least for an Italian, because I actually come from a non-religious family, so I wasn't baptized. And uh, many people in Italy actually are not incredibly religious but they still tend to go to church in certain occasions. For example, they baptize children, they get married in church, they organize funerals in church. So the choice of my parents to not baptize me was a little bit unusual, especially when I was um, when I was little. But at the same time, my parents, they both came from Catholic families, and I grew up in a very Catholic environment, which... Um, is what is like to grow up in Italy. And my parents also were really open-minded and uh, they pushed me to be curious about religion. They told me that if I found a religion I liked I could definitely become a religious person. So I started to explore uh, well Catholicism first of all because I was in a Catholic environment but also was really curious about for example visiting mosques in Turkey or orthodox churches in Greece or um I became really fascinated with um, Asian religions and after all this journey which I started really young when I was a teenager I just discovered I really wanted to be to remain a non-religious person but I got so curious about religions that then I ended up in religious studies so, I love
0: that I love that. I think that, um, you know, having that ability to explore from a young age is uh, so important. And I'm, I'm basically doing the same exact thing with my own daughter. So I, uh, I look forward to seeing what she explores and gets into in her life as well. Um, so you are academically interested in the intersection of media and religion, specifically in the age of the internet. And I got the internet for the first time when I was in seventh grade. And my pre internet life and my post internet life, I feel like, are totally different. Um, okay. So, can you take me a bit uh, on a bit of a tour of how you came to be interested in the areas of religion and media? Because I know that you have a journey from Italy to Japan to Belgium and Colorado. Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in religion and how it intersects with media.
1: Okay, so um, as I was telling you, I was interested in studying religions. I actually, in my undergrad, I studied um, Asian languages, especially Japanese, um, and I got the opportunity to go a little bit, to live a little bit in Japan for a few months to study and to work. But I. Realized that religious studies was sort of like more my path But at the same time I was attracted to Really know what people were doing for me studying languages and studying religions was really an idea It was really a tool to get in touch with people and understand their viewpoints so I definitely wanted to focus on contemporary religions And I started to feel that media was something that could strongly point me to the right direction I wanted to go. So I did my master's dissertation about uh, media, marketing and religion when I was in Italy. And then actually I got tired of academia for a little bit. (laughs) And I worked in uh, uh, Brussels, which is a little bit the um, unofficial capital of Europe. And I was working for NGOs and my role was essentially a communication role. So I was abandoning the religious side of my education for a while. And that actually was really interesting for me and really important because, well, I learned a lot about projects and grant writing, which is always useful, and a lot about communication. And after two years uh, out in the real world, I was really convinced I wanted to go back to academia. Mm-hmm. So what I did. And at that point, I was really focused on studying media because I, I was fascinated by communication and by uh, media logics. And so I started to apply for PhD programs. And to my great surprise, I was accepted uh, from the Center uh, for Media, Religion and Culture, the University of Colorado Boulder, which is, um, I would say, the best place in the world to study uh, religion and media. Of course, I'm biased. There are other good centers, but I had a wonderful (laughs) experience there. So um, I I did my PhD there, and I started to focus specifically on the Internet because I was really fascinated by how fast uh, communication is changing in the Internet age. And after that, I moved to Germany, and I went back to religious studies. I was in media studies when I was in Colorado, And now it's really interesting because I get to work with people from all different backgrounds and uh, while my personal work continues to be about the Internet, we are trying to think about media theories across the centuries. So comparing different case studies and different empirical sources and thinking about how is the evolution of technology and the evolution of communication really affecting religion? And what are the things that remain the same throughout centuries?
0: And you've really been able to do that very well by uh, bringing together the world of media and religion into your brand new book out now Mm -hmm. from Rutledge, and it's called Blogging My Religion, Secular, Muslim, and Catholic Media Spaces in Europe. And I've been reading the book, and I really enjoy it because I feel like it just really captures our present and where we are and where we've been the last 10 years or so. So how do you describe to people you meet what this book is about?
1: So the book is uh, primarily about religious change, religious change in a broad sense, about those trends of religiosity that um, are evolving with technology. So the idea is that today religion does not only happen in traditional spaces we know, for example, churches or temples or mosques, but religion also happens um, on media, for example, on social media. And that's why studying religious blogs is actually a way to understand how people conceptualize their religious identities, create religious communities, and think about religion in modernity.
0: Okay, so the book takes place in France, Belgium, and Italy. Um, Why did you narrow in on these three countries specifically for your case studies?
1: So... The book is based on my PhD dissertation and that was um about mainly about Italy. I did that of course for a linguistic reason but also because I living in the US I started to feel that there was a need to talk about certain contexts that were a little bit overlooked by the mainstream literature. And that's because uh, maybe that's a little bit of a Western-centric approach, but sometimes Europe and the U.S. are just assimilated as being somehow similar. And the same goes for all European countries. They We talk about Europe and the fact that Europe is secular, but sometimes um, I feel that scholars are losing some of the nuances on what is going on. So I was fascinated by looking at certain patterns happening in Italy. So, for example, uh, the Vatican being really powerful, uh, especially in media media venues, despite uh, um, the tendency of the, the progressive secularization. And for my book, I wanted then to do a little bit more of a comparative work. And so I added blogs in French. Um, so it's, it's mostly based in Italy and France and a little bit of Belgium because also in Belgium people speak French and some of the French blogs actually, um, have a Belgian connection. Um, what was interesting in that sense is that Italy and France are um, very similar under certain aspects because they're both Catholic, and their histories has been um, often intertwined. Uh, however, they're also very very different because Italy is one of the most Religiously, religiously engaged country in Europe. And France is the other end of the spectrum, because in France there is this idea of laicite, the state secularism, which is really important for people's identity. And uh, so by comparing these two contexts, of course, I couldn't get an idea of all Europe, but I could trace some patterns and show how they actually happen in different ways in different countries.
0: So, Julia, I think that you are filling a really interesting gap in the research literature because you can speak so many languages. Like, I feel like you were, like, born to do a study that focuses on French and Italian um, languages in blogs as well. Like, you know, how do you feel about that? Are you Do you feel like you're filling some kind of unique gap in the literature?
1: I feel I do. Um, and I hope other people feel the same way, too, actually. Um... I really believe that it's, of course, important to produce literature in English so it can actually reach many people. But I also believe that uh, it's important not to lose the specificities of each country. And it's important to also focus on contexts where the language spoken is not um, English or American. So... While I was uh, writing the book, especially the first chapters where I do a little bit of a literature review, I was uh, reading other works on blogs. And actually, um, there are not many books and articles that talk about blogs in an international perspective. That's changing a little bit, but I feel like it's good to have examples and case studies uh, of analyzing people that are not part of the English uh, blogosphere, let's say. So,
0: I read this book in English. Did you write it originally in English? Are there multiple translations of the book?
1: No, I wrote it in English. I actually wanted to translate it in other languages, but um, I don't know. That's maybe for the future. Nice. Very cool.
0: So, um, the subtitle of the book uses the term secular in the subtitle. And throughout the book, you, you seem to use the word atheist a lot as well. Did you have to, like make a choice or did you struggle to decide which term to use in the subtitle as far as secular versus atheist?
1: Yes, actually that was something I struggled a little bit with. So um, I use the term secular because that seems to be a dominant term, especially in relation to religion. So religion and the secular are used as um, terms that are related to each other. So I think of secular not really as something which is opposite to religion, but something that completes religion a little bit. So a secular state is not an anti-religious state, but is a state that acknowledges religion, but just is based on non-religious principle. However, when I was describing the specific groups, I tried to use the terminology they were using to describe themselves. And so I analyzed uh, one chapter of my book, analyzes um atheist blogs in Italian France and they actually were using multiple terms and um, especially they were using the term laicite which could be translated as secular but it's has a little bit of a different nuance because it's a very French concept of how um, secularism should be, and in general, especially the Italian blogs, uh, they were talking about atheism a lot. And I felt that calling them atheism gave me more the sense of the fact that they do not just want uh, to be secular in the sense of uh, not being engaged with religion, they actually are promoting actively the creation of a non-religious society. And sometimes they also criticize religion very harshly. So in that sense, I found the term "atheist" better described what they were doing.:
0: Interesting. Okay. So in the introduction of the book, um, there's a quote that I really like, and it said and you wrote quote, "Which are the stories that magazine covers do not tell, and which media tell the stories that are not yet media events?" So this struck me because there are so many different levels of media now in the world. And you focus on one that is often overlooked, but which gains a lot of uh, viral sensations. Like this morning, I was reading the blog of the um, former pastor, John Pavlovitz, that I really like to read. So what are bloggers allowed to do that television and newspaper outlets are not allowed or are unable to do?
1: So for my book, I focus on groups that perceive themselves as marginalized, either because they are uh, numerically a minority or because they do not feel that mainstream religiosity represent them or because they're not religious. So this idea of them being alternative or being marginalized is actually something that comes out very prominent from their blogs. And of course, they also, a part of this feeling of marginalization is the fact that they cannot uh, get their voice out in mainstream media that easily. So when we talk about mainstream media, of course, so um, I'm referring to television or radio and newspapers that are have, for example, national diffusion. It's not that easy for a person who is not part of a strong organization to just uh, be featured in one of those uh, media platforms. On the other hand, uh, it's relatively easy to set a blog. And you probably know better than me that sometimes um, getting popular on the internet can be really hard. Oh, yes. But writing a blog or doing a podcast, as in your case, can still be a first step to establish your voice and for the groups that i am studying um, it was really important to set uh, blogs and other social networks accounts as a way to basically say we are here we exist and also to attract the attention of other media platforms because sometimes The blogs I studied have articles quoted, for example, in national newspapers and so forth. So in that sense, um, I'm not saying that the Internet is just changing everything because it's so difficult to get your voice out on the Internet. But at least it gives you the sense that you can be more active and telling what you think.
0: It's really interesting to be able to do a show like this because you know I could have turned this into a blog or a show like this but it's really amazing that anybody can get their voice out there now whereas 15 years ago it was so much different than it is now and that's really not a lot of time whatsoever so you use the term uh media event a lot in the book So how does this term look different for, like, the religion blogosphere as opposed to, like, more mainstream news outlets? Are you noticing differences in the way that, like, blogs versus mainstream media covers events? Um, Like, what are you noticing about media event for blogs versus, like, bigger media?
1: Okay, so um, the literature on media event in the religion and media field, it's actually... um, It's very interesting, and I would say that the most important book was written by Diane Katz, and it's called Media Events, and it was written uh, with in mind mostly the television um, and sort of like the mass media covered media events. Uh, an example could be the um, wedi- the royal wedding of Charles and Diana. That was a very big event that a lot of people from the UK and I suspect from abroad as well actually watched. And it was not um, religious per se, but the behavior people had in approaching this event was somehow religious. And we can say the same for, for example, the Super Bowl, when you're just glued to the television and for that, that that's sort of like, the big event that everybody talks about, and you have a sense of participation through media. And actually what's interesting in thinking about media events is that they still exist. Talking about royal weddings, there was just the one of um, Meghan and Harry and William and and William's wife, uh, Kate. But right. um, <laughs> it's... Uh, Now people continue to participate into these events, but it's not just only through television or newspapers, but it's also through social networks. Because most of the time um, you can watch it live on the Internet and at the same time you can tweet about that. Most important media events have hashtags now. Uh, You can also share certain parts, certain images and videos. You can comment that. You can also create counter narratives, for example, criticizing what is happening. So in that sense, media events uh, pretty much remain the same, but it becomes much more articulated. And uh, um, I use this framework of media event to um, describe in one of my past works, um the election of pope francis which was clearly mediated by television but also on a lot of digital platforms and it would be interesting of course to see the next pope uh, um how will be mediated in uh, his election
0: yeah i mean as you probably know from watching the united states over the last several years and living here as well for a long time counter narratives of you know, major events are becoming significantly more frequent in the media. And that is one of the things that is really driving the country's future at the moment is the development and the prominent uh, prominence of counter narratives, which I think is really cool. Um, so, and to extend on that, in the U.S., we are like regularly bombarded with images from Europe as well that are indicative of change. So whether it be the UK voting for Brexit, which I'm following very closely because I used to live in London, um, the resurgence of like far right European politics here and there uh, and mass refugee arrival, the conflicts between Trump and the EU or Angela Merkel or Emmanuel Macron or Justin Trudeau. So European society and religion in Europe is it looks like it's changing quickly. And I, I'm wondering if that's somewhat illusory. Um, so something that's still so new to us is our ability to communicate like in mass um, with the internet, like in texting and WhatsApp and Twitter and Facebook. So we are able to intensify our communication through what you refer to in the book as hypermediation. So can you explain hypermediation and describe how hypermediation like pulls us into? this like, idea of this fast rate of change that we're seeing around the world?
1: Sure. Um, so the theory of hypermediation is something I started to think about while I was doing my PhD um, in, at the University of Colorado because that was the theoretical framework we were using at the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture. So um, hypermediation is something that tries to capture what's happening today with, uh, with the media, And not only for religion, as you uh, correctly point, also (laughs) politics are increasingly changing the way they communicate. So uh, in media studies, there is a theory of mediation, which is something that has also been used in relation to religion. And that's the idea uh, which I pretty much agree with, that we don't only use media as tools to communicate, but media actually uh, also acquire cultural meanings. Because, of course, we, for example, we define our identities by watching certain types of television or reading certain types of newspapers. Uh, Media can actually shape the way we think, behave, and interact with others. However, clearly, from If we think about the, let's say, old media, I don't particularly like the term, but just to differentiate the pre and the post-internet era, with the old media, the possibilities of interacting were somehow limited. Now, it's the mediation is definitely changing because let's just think about our mobile devices. Most of us have a smartphone on them all the time. Simple tasks that beforehand were performed elsewhere, like, you know, looking at an app or calling someone or, um, you know, checking the time. Now it's the smartphone that does all of that for us. And we can be connected in a way which is much more intensified. It's faster, but it's also more emotional because uh, we tend to mediate a lot of aspects of our lives. We put a lot of private things on social networks Um, and in general, and that goes for religion and for all the other aspects of our life. So it was necessary to take the idea of mediation and... Uh, put something that could signal that it was changing. And that's why hyper mediation. Hyper comes from uh, ancient Greek and is the idea of something which is beyond, but also something which is extreme, which is an excess, let's say. So um, the idea of hypermediation is that media, we don't only think about one single medium, but rather the fact that today we can communicate in a very fast and emotional way with a lot of people at the same time, and we can also consume a lot of different media platforms. And that, of course, uh, affects what also we do um, outside media. This uh, has a very strong impact on our everyday behavior.
0: Yeah, the, the emotional component, is super important. And I've actually had to have a, you know, a really intense uh, look at myself, because for a long time, for a lot of years now, I've been very, very involved in Facebook and posting articles and having long discussions on Facebook and getting into arguments with people that I really, really like. But, you know, the immediacy of social media in our phones is, is really interesting. And I actually went to the step about six weeks ago of deleting Facebook off my phone so that I remove that emotional tether to um, these discussions so that if I want to take something onto Facebook, I actually have to go to my computer and post it so that it removes this instantaneous emotional uh, overload that I tend to get whenever I'm super involved in posting on Facebook. So I've, I've actually realized that about myself as a sort of ugly, uh, realization that I need to remove and I'm way happier. So that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Have you, in the research, what was the ugliest realization you discovered, uh, due to hypermediation? Did you stumble on any like really scary stuff or things that you read about?
1: Yes. Well, um, I did, in a way, I mean, uh, it, it's not really an ugly realization, but in my book I have three case studies, and uh, so I, I study three different groups, and clearly there are some I agree more with, and some that have ideas which are opposite to mine. And so my last case study is about the so-called anti-gender movement, which is something that it's probably more popular in, the, in Europe than in the U.S., it's um, Catholic-inspired groups that protest against um, same-sex marriages um, and, uh, in general, they want to go back to a traditionalist model of family. And I mostly disagree with what they say, but at the same time it's a very interesting phenomenon, so I, I wanted to work with them. And um, also the interviews I did with them uh were with people that were really nice. So I cannot really say anything about themselves. But I just realized how uh, if you have a good way of communicating, you can actually be really successful in spreading almost every message, every also messages that... For example, want to marginalize other people, and that it's actually very um, is something I would like to study. To go back to your uh, last question, to study in relation to populism and political identities, because that's sort of like the same mechanism. If you are able to get viral and get present enough on social networks. It's actually um, not that uh, difficult to mobilize mobilize people um, against something. And of course, this is really scary because that's a huge tool. And if people use it properly, then it can have a very big impact on our society.
0: Did you see any of the groups blogging as a form of like religious practice? Like so like. Whenever people practice their religion, they might do things like prayer or um, go to a, a holy site like on certain days of the week or take communion. Did you see blogging and writing on MacBooks as sort of like the new like quill and ink sort of of like religious expression?
1: So my specific case studies, which I used in my book um, I would say not so much, because I selected groups that, that are religious in scope, but they mostly blog because they want either to create social action or to go against stereotypes or to advocate for certain groups. So they are more, I would say, um, blogging and writing for um, social and cultural change. However, what you are saying is very relevant for a lot of other um of other examples. Because in my work, for, I, I explored many online religious communities where actually writing on the internet could have a sort of religious um, scope. For example, I worked a little bit on neo-pagan communities and there are people performing rituals online. Um, there are people that create websites that have for them a religious meaning. And in this sense, I would also like to stress the idea that uh, the power of writing as a religious practice is something central, which doesn't really change with the new technologies. And sometimes I have colleagues that are philologists that would disagree with that. But I believe it's really important that we continue to consider that in the Internet age, uh, writing does not disappear. Uh it remains something very important for the religious expression. Can you tell me
0: briefly a little bit about the groups and the blogs that you studied, just like whatever you're able to reveal within your like i r b constraints and everything?
1: Sure, sure, no and I actually put the names of the blogs on the in the book as well because they are public blogs so I didn't have, and also I interviewed uh, bloggers who are basically public figures because they publish with their names and everything. So I selected um, two groups, uh, three groups from Italy and three groups from France, and um, each group uh, it is uh, um, about one different um, religion, or more precisely, um, I explore the three tendencies which are so prominent in the two um national contexts, and one is the growth of Islam, but not just through migration, but sort of like people um being born in the country from uh, Muslim parents and therefore being uh, European and uh, Muslim at the same time. So I had a blog in Italy and um, a blog in France written by young Muslims. And then I uh, studied the rise of atheism, but not just people stopping to be religious, rather those people that organize and create atheist associations. And I also had one in Italy and one in France, and they are not, um of course, they are not a religious group, but they sometimes behave as if they also have uh, this sort of religious structure. Uh And then the last case study is the one I was uh, mentioning before about anti-gender groups. And I also was looking at one group in Italy and one in France, Um which are informal groups which are not connected to the Catholic Church formally, but um, have a lot of inspiration from Catholic leaders.
0: What was the most fun that you had during the research process? Like, what was really enjoyable about this entire uh, process from the beginning to the end of this book?
1: Um, I actually want to say that writing this book was pretty fun overall. (laughs) I know it seems irrealistic because normally academics complain a lot about their writing but um, the very reason because I got into academia is because I love writing and doing research and especially I sort of want to high-five myself because I found a very interesting topic of research. I get to read wonderful blogs all day and I got to talk with very interesting people so of course, I mean, there are moments uh, in the analysis that can be a little repetitive and tedious because I had to read the blog so many times. But at the same time, I, I really feel it was a fun process overall. But yeah, I would say in general, probably finding and starting to read the blogs. You always have this moment of, wow, that's something good in here. I can put it in my book.
0: Nice. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that the people who write the blogs may or may not be actively engaged in the community outside the Internet. Like for me, um, like I do this podcast in my house, but I'm not out in public doing public events outside the Internet. Are the groups that you studied kind of like a reclusive type like me, or are they more active in society outside the Internet?
1: Uh, I would say that in general they're more active in society. Because I selected, as I was saying, blogs that are about religion, but are also about social change. And one important part of the fear of hypermediation is also looking at how activities you do online have um, an impact on what happens offline. But having said so, of course. Um, I studied blogs that attract a very wide readership. Sometimes a post can have one or 200 comments. So I cannot really say that all those people that comment are actually active offline. The founders of the blogs usually are. But at the same time, um, I'm sure that there there is a part of the people that consume those blogs that are more reclusive, um, if you want to use the term. Sure. Can you tell
0: me about the interview process for the book?
1: Sure. Um, So I use what I call the mixed methodology. So at the very beginning, I started with uh, um, doing a content analysis of the blogs. And uh, um, at the beginning, I was thinking about just analyzing the blogs. But then I felt that something was missing. Um, some information, especially about the process of writing and about the ideas behind the post. So I contacted um, uh, at least one blogger for each blog, um, because um, something I did not mention is that each blog have more than one author. So normally they I, are either connected to a, a group or an association or they are written by multiple people. And uh, they usually have um, contact information and they also have Twitter and Facebook accounts which are normally um, administered by the person in the group who is more for uh, communication and PR. So I started to contact those people and uh, I asked if I could meet them and I got some positive responses. well, I actually got mixed responses because I would say that with Muslims and atheists, um, it was just really easy to get in contact and meet because they also want they like the fact that I was an academic and I was talking about them. While the um Catholic anti gender groups were a little bit suspicious because they do not particularly like um academia in general mm-hmm. because they see that as this left-wing fortress. <laughs> <laughs> but I still got to talk with a couple of people that were actually really nice. So um, in that sense, uh, also the interview process was, was a, fun, um, a fun one. And uh, I tried to meet in person with the people I could, but especially for um, the participants base in France, I use Skype or other um, devices because sometimes it was just impossible to meet. Face to face. So I know that you
0: had um, like all men as your interview subjects, and I know that was sort of like an accidental byproduct. Like, what do you think you missed out on um, in in the process?
1: Yeah, that's that's something interesting, which I noted in my book. I almost all my interviewees were men. I only had one woman, actually, a, a Muslim uh, woman from Italy. Um, it was accidental in the sense that I just contacted. Um, in general, each blog saying, oh, I'm an academic and I would like to interview someone. And spontaneously, men came out as saying, I want to be the one interviewed. I'm the spokesperson. Which I would say that says something about um, also gender relations because there there were women writing those blogs, in some cases also have important roles. It's just that probably men see themselves more as leaders in uh, in these circumstances, or at least as someone who uh, people should listen to. <laughs> um, and I did miss out something, because many of the blogs talk about an issue that regards women. For example, the Muslim veil, which is something that both uh, Muslims and atheists talk about in different terms, of course. Um, they talk about reproductive rights, especially the Catholic groups. And therefore, um, I would have liked to talk with more women, but on the other hand, I could still, um, since my main um, analysis was that of the blogs, um, I could sort of like um, give more attention to those posts written by women and trying to gather more of uh, this information from the blogs themselves rather than from the interviews.
0: Nice. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about something called the public square. Now, in in past centuries, somebody like the Pope would have to go out on his little balcony in the Vatican and address people by the thousands standing in the square there in the Vatican next to the Basilica. Now, you included an awesome description of the Pope utilizing Twitter— as sort of like his digital public square. And I follow some historians on Twitter like um notably like uh, Kevin Cruz who's super popular right now. And they're often accused of being afraid of debating people in the public square. Yet they engage like in these really long and well-researched Twitter discussions as a form of the new public square. So do you find like digital expression like the popes or like these historians on Twitter as equal to like the old-fashioned public square of person to person communication and debate like is social media the new public square?
1: That's a very interesting question and many scholars have tried to answer that before. Um I think first of all um it's interesting to think about the Pope, because I believe that the Pope, in a way, doesn't really use Twitter in its full potential. Um, and I'm not criticizing the Pope or the Vatican media strategies, which is actually really good. But um, if you look at the Pope's Twitter account, he probably only follows maybe 10 people, and mostly is himself in other languages. <laughs> And I think the same goes for the Dalai Lama or other of those very big personalities, which I just used to be followed. And that's the same as in uh, St. Peter's Square, right? Um, the Pope appears on the balcony and uh, he says his message. People don't really answer to him. And that's sort of like the same on Twitter. Um, the messages of the Pope, the tweets of the Pope are sort of there just to be liked and retweeted, not really to engage with people, uh, which is a little bit what celebrities do as well. What I think, so um, in a way, Twitter is, uh, um, is of course, innovative, but it's still part of these media strategies of the Vatican, which consists in becoming very visible, but not necessarily engaging On the other hand, a lot of um, public intellectuals or religious leaders, for example, they use Twitter to actually get close to people. And I'm not sure if we can really talk about public square in that sense, because, of course, not everybody has the same access to social media as you would have to a public space. Um, And it's also difficult to understand the logics of Um, how the social media function Um, and at the same time um, I actually wrote something about hate speech on Twitter sometimes as you were saying about um, you getting into arguments on Facebook sometimes you can actually um, get um, antagonistic with people rather than just having a constructive conversation. But having said so, I think that in certain circumstances, actually social networks, can really be a very important arena. Uh, Because now you can actually approach much more people than you could before. Um, You can get in touch, for example, with authors or intellectuals you like, and there's a chance actually you can have a Twitter conversation or a Facebook conversation Um, that otherwise would never take place if you're not in the same physical space. So from that point of view, there's a lot of potential. And in that sense, it could a little bit be a a new public space.
0: So imagine that you are like a futurist of (laughs) religion. And I'm curious about what trends you see as being like unstoppable and indicative of our futures in religious practice like tell me about the future
1: wow i'll take my divination sphere out (laughs) (laughs) well first of all and that's because of the field i'm in i would say that media will be more and more important because now it's nowadays it's important not only to have ideas and to spread them but also to become visible to uh, have a certain space um out there, and media are really important not just social media but media in general, because they have a lot they can confer validation for certain uh, for certain practices and phenomena and of course um there are in certain contexts such as the one I'm studying the european context that, um there is this idea that uh future is bringing secularization which is only partially true, because certain types of religion are actually becoming more visible. It could be religious garments of uh, newly uh, immigrated people, or um, it could be also, uh, for example, Catholic or Christians that become more visible and more vocal. What I think is interesting is that religion uh, its increasingly um, intertwined with the secular sphere because more and more people are bringing religion out there and use them as a motivation, either for social action or for their political choices and so forth, in good and bad ways, of course. Again, if we think about political choices that could be about reproductive rights or migration, they are strongly motivated also by religious feelings. So in that sense, um, I think it's a strong trend that will probably continue in the near future.
0: What are you following now? Like what blogs, um, podcasts, Reddit, like what are, what are you following?
1: Well, of course you podcast. Woo-hoo! Um, so I actually have to say that lately I've been more active on Twitter where you actually found me. So that's a good thing for me to be active over there. Um, and that's interesting because, um, again, for this idea of hypermediation, Twitter connects you to a lot of different platforms because you can follow a person, but you can also follow the Twitter account of a blog. And uh, um, it's easy to, I, since I follow a lot of academics and scholars and historians and religious scholars and so forth, um, for example, I can get in contact with their personal blogs or I can get the news they share. So in a way, I feel like um, I'm also cutting on my social media use, even though I'm a social media scholar. And I feel like just by keeping all my activities on the Twitter platform, I can still get um, something interesting out of the internet um, without really having to spend so much time following a lot of different things.
0: Are you finding that your quality of life has gone up a little bit after you have sort of like restricted your own participation just a bit?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know. Um, I'm actually a fan of social media. Um, I just, yeah, I would say probably it's good to just keep your focus on one platform to have your a better quality of life because why when i was trying to be active on a lot of different platforms i was just missing out something i guess
0: nice so, so you like full the, immersion in one instead of like yeah. partial immersion in many
1: but i also have to say that i'm very strict with myself i usually um tell myself i can check social networks only twice a day Sometimes I follow my own rules, sometimes I don't. But I still try to.
0: (laughs) So you're on a podcast discussing the impact of media on religion. So this is media. Um, Mm -hmm. How are you noticing podcasts playing a role in the change of religious engagement around the world?
1: I'm sure they are playing a role. Because I have been listening to many interesting podcasts. Either, um, like yours, that talk about religion... But also some produced by religious groups, or for example, that talk about interfaith dialogue or inter religious experiences. Um, and I think they're changing it um, as much as many of the other um, tweet, uh, internet um, platforms are, in the sense that what we were saying before, they're giving people uh, one more tool to actually get their voice out. And um, I feel like there's really um, an increase in podcasts lately. I don't know, you probably know that better than I do. But I feel like um, with the decline of the radio, people are more and more listening to podcasts because that's a way to keep your mind busy. Also, when you're doing something else, like driving or so. So it seems like it could be a nice way to engage with religion, but also to explore other um other religions and get information about religion.
0: What's so funny is I used to um, listen to so many more podcasts than I listen Mm -hmm. to now because I listened to so many podcast episodes. And then I was like, okay, this is how I'm going to structure mine. And I got all these ideas from all these other places. And then now that I'm doing one and I have to spend like so much time editing and preparing and like studying and booking and everything that my actual listening and enjoyment of other podcasts has decreased substantially. So
1: (laughs) the one way to like
0: ruin your own um, ability to listen to a lot of podcasts is to start your own podcast. Okay. (laughs) Um, Where do you get your religion news? Are there any like reporters or journalists out there that you follow and respect?
1: Yeah, that's another interesting question that actually made me think a little bit because I mostly don't follow religious reporters, and the truth is, and I, I think that the answer to this question has something to do also with what I am saying in my book, because sometimes you, I just consume news in general, and a lot of uh, current news are actually about religion, Even if they're not explicitly so, but religion is in a lot of political and cultural decisions, for example. So in that sense, I feel like for the way um, journalism is structured, especially I would say in Europe, maybe in in the US is a little different. You just have a lot of... religion across the news and sometimes it's just not fleshed out and I like to consume news in general and then um, maybe um, just focus more on something that interests me also professionally awesome. but I don't I wouldn't say I have a specific religious journalist I follow
0: well dr. Julia Evolvi um, that is our our hour, um together Uh, I'm loving the book, Blogging My Religion. I still have a little bit more to go until I finish it. But um, I think that it's wonderful. And I think that all the work that you're doing is so important for understanding where we have yet to go as a society in our spiritual lives. So I almost consider you like uh, doing the work of the future as far as religion goes.
1: Well, thanks a lot. I'm happy to hear that
0: um, where can people find you if they want to know a little bit more about your work where would you direct their attention
1: okay well on twitter since I said I'm more active there um, which is at Julia Volvi, just my name and last name I also have my website, um, where I have all my publication and information about my book, and I also have a blog that I update from time to time, which is www.julievolvi.com. And in general, if you Google me, um, I'm the only person in the world with my name. So you'll find me pretty easily on academia.edu and LinkedIn and those various platforms
0: excellent well i'm going to add you on linkedin later today so you can expect that (laughs) okay dr julie thank you so much for coming on classical ideas this has been a blast thanks a lot classical ideas is produced by me greg soden music on classical ideas is composed and performed by derek streibik you can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.